Hi, everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. This is the Tuesday, January 10th edition. It's brought to you here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. This is Andrew Hopp, your reader, and we are going to take a look at the headlines here, and then we're going to take a look at the weather for this reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. Lottery jackpot, also good for stores. Owners of businesses that sell winning tickets usually reap rewards. And that ties into our main headline, Vendors Busy as Mega Millions Surpasses $1 Billion. Other front page headlines include Iowa GOP Makes Policy Vow and Farmers Win Right to Repair. John Deere American Farm Bureau Sign Agreement on Repairs. So those stories and more, but first a check of your forecast here for Mason City and the North Iowa area. Well, for today, Wednesday, if you are listening to us on the air here, expect areas of fog before noon, otherwise mostly cloudy with a high near 34. Light and variable wind coming north and uh, northwest up to 8 miles per hour during the afternoon. Wednesday night, expect mostly cloudy conditions, low around 19 degrees, wind chill values as low as 5 above, blustery conditions with a north-northwest wind gusting to as high as 24 miles per hour. For your Thursday, tomorrow, expect mostly cloudy skies, a high near 24, winds gusting from the northwest up to 28 miles per hour. Thursday night, mostly cloudy, a low around 11, and Friday, mostly sunny, high near 21. The weekend looks okay, Uh, Saturday, sunny, high 34, Sunday, Mostly cloudy, a high near 39, but above freezing anyway, at least. Uh, but again, for today, this Wednesday, areas of fog before noon, otherwise mostly cloudy with a high near 34 degrees for Mason City and the North Iowa area. Now, on to those headlines. We'll start it off with our headline page and photo here, and uh, our, our big headline is the uh, Vendors Busy as Mega Millions Surpasses $1 Billion, and the photo with it shows Christy McClanahan, a lady purchasing a Mega Millions, Mega Millions ticket from uh, Midtown Liquor and Vape in Mason City on Monday from manager Carrie Juarez. Subheadline reads, Lottery Hopefuls, I third largest prize in U.S. history. This written by the Globe Gazette staff and Associated Press. Well, Christy McClanahan almost never plays the lottery, but if she wins the estimated $1.1 billion jackpot Tuesday night, she knows exactly what she is going to do. I have a lot of grandchildren and great-grandchildren coming, so I'd probably spoil them, she said at Midtown Liquor and Vape in Mason City on Monday. I put us all on a big ranch where we'd each have our own places. Well, McClanahan and millions of others are hoping to match those six magic numbers at tonight's 10 p.m. drawing. Local vendors, um, which actually this is uh, in retrospect. This whole story's in retrospect, everyone. I didn't realize it. This will run on Tuesday morning, so don't freak out. It'll be fine. Um, this is just what people were thinking before. I'm sure we'll know the winner by the time this airs tomorrow. Maybe not. Who knows? Well, anyway, McClanahan and millions of others are hoping to match those six magic numbers at the 10 p.m. drawing. Local vendors are seeing a surge in customers buying tickets as the big drawing approaches. Oh yeah, we get traffic all the time, said Ashley Busick, assistant manager at Casey's General Store on South Federal Avenue. Especially now that it's $1.1 billion, she said, referring to dollars. Busick said she would buy her mother a house along with a new house for herself and some cars if she were the big winner. She'd save the rest for the prize. She was planning to buy a ticket after her shift. Kylie Simon, a cashier at Casey's General Store on South Monroe Avenue, said she's too young to play because she's only 19. If she could play, she'd use the money to set up a better future for herself. All local vendors said the number of people who chose their own numbers and the customers who used the easy play option is about the same. No one hit all six six numbers to win the estimated $940 million jackpot Friday, pushing the lottery prize to 10 figures ahead of Tuesday night's drawing. It is now the third largest prize in U.S. history. There have been 24 drawings without a jackpot winner stretching back for more than two months. The winner, the winless streak is largely due to the game's long odds of 1 and 302.6 million. The only Mega Millions jackpots larger than the estimated $1.1 billion Opportunity Tuesday have been the $1.53 billion won in South Carolina in 2018 and the $1.33 billion winning ticket in Illinois in July. Mega Millions said in a statement, 
The new estimated prize of $1.1 billion is for a winner who chooses an annuity paid annually over 29 years. Grand prize winners usually take the cash option, which will be an estimated $568.7 million. That's a lot of cash taken away, but still not too bad. Midtown Liquor and Vape Manager Carrie Juarez said she bought six tickets last week but didn't win anything. She said she only plays when the jackpots get big, and she knows exactly what she would do with her winnings. I would buy this place and I would hire my children and retire, Juarez said. Mega Millions has played in 45 states as well as Washington, D.C. and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Lottery jackpot also good for stores. Owners of businesses that sell winning tickets usually reap rewards. This story by Scott McFetridge of the Associated Press, Dateline, Des Moines, Iowa. An estimated $1.1 billion Mega Millions jackpot drawing Tuesday night has people lined up at, a convenient, at convenience stores nationwide to buy tickets in long-shot hopes of winning a massive prize. But shop and gas station owners selling the tickets also have a chance at a big-figure bonus. State lotteries usually reward the owners of businesses that sell winning jackpot tickets thousands of dollars or even up to $1 million, even before those giant prizes are claimed. Well, the latest on the jackpot? It seems no one can win the Mega Millions jackpot, so it keeps getting larger. The last time someone overcame the odds of a 1 in 302.6 million chance and won the top prize was on October 14th. Since then, there have been 24 straight drawings without anyone, anyone snagging the jackpot. The prize now ranks as the fifth largest, though it's still only about half the size of a record $2.04 billion Powerball jackpot with only a couple months ago, won only a couple months ago by someone in California. While it seems like forever since someone won, it's quite a ways from the record of 41 straight drawings that occurred a couple of times, most recently leading up to that $2.04 billion California prize. And who is the lucky Californian? That remains a mystery. The California lottery hasn't announced a winner and says its policy is to not acknowledge whether anyone has claimed a prize until a supposedly winning ticket is vetted. All that's clear is that a ticket matching all six numbers drawn November the 9th was sold at Joe's Service Center in Altadena, an unincorporated community northeast of Los Angeles. One winner in Altadena is clear. Even if we don't know anything about the Powerball winner, we know the service center owner, Joe Chehade, was paid his $1 million bonus by lottery officials. Standing under a sign hoisted by the lottery that read Billionaire Made Here and surrounded by dozens of media representatives and well-wishers, Chehade said he planned to spend the money on his five children and would donate some of it to help his community. He didn't have a clue who had purchased the winning ticket. I wish I knew the person, but most people who buy tickets from me are from the neighborhood. I hope one of them will be the winner, he said. Well, how does the retailer bonus system work? The rules vary from state to state. Ohio, for example, pays up to $100,000 to retailers who sell jackpot winning tickets. In Illinois, retailers can get up to a $500,000 bonus, and in California, that benefit tops out at $1 million. The state lottery say it's part of their efforts to encourage retailers to promote ticket sales. Some business owners say they also often see at least a temporary surge in business as superstitious players stop off to buy their tickets at a spot where something hit it big. Well, the Powerball is getting larger, too. Even as the Mega Millions jackpot grows even larger, the top prize for the Powerball game is also nearing massive status. Ahead of a drawing Monday night, that prize stands at $340 million for players who opt to be paid through an annuity doled out over 29 years. If you buy a ticket, don't forget, whether you spend $2 or $200 on Mega Millions or Powerball tickets, your chance of, chances of winning are incredibly small. Powerball's odds of 1 in 292.2 million are a little better than those offered by Mega Millions, but they're still miserable. Can't get your mind around that? Andrew Swift, a mathematics professor at the University of Nebraska, Omaha, described it another way, noting the odds of winning for a person who buys a single ticket in either game are a little worse than flipping a coin and getting heads 
28 straight times. And don't forget this either. Although the publicized annuity prize of $1.1 billion for winning Mega Millions or $340 million for Powerball Jackpot get all the attention, winners rarely choose such a long-term payment option. They want their money right now. The cash payout is much smaller at $568.7 million for Mega Millions and $178.2 million for Powerball. So if you dream of buying a yacht, maybe for uh, settle for, yeah, they don't write this right. Maybe for settle for, maybe just settle for one rather than two. Mega Millions is played in 45 states as well as Washington, D.C. and the Virgin Islands, U.S. Virgin Islands. All right, on that happy note, moving on to more front page news here. Iowa GOP makes policy vow. Republican leaders call for bold action in 2023 session. This story by Aaron Murphy, Tom Barton, and Caleb McCullough of the Globe Gazette, Des Moines Bureau, Dateline, Des Moines. Emboldened by six years of conservative reforms under their belts and multiple elections that expanded their majorities in the Iowa legislature, Republicans kicked off the 2023 state lawmaking session Monday by promising more conservative action, particularly on K-12 education and property taxes. The 90th General Assembly met for the first time at the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines. In the coming months, legislators will consider hundreds of proposals to make changes to Iowa state law. Republicans hold commanding agenda setting majorities 34 to 16 in the Senate and 64 to 36 in the House. While that margin grew in November's election, this is the seventh consecutive year Republicans have held complete control of the state lawmaking process with major majorities in the House, Senate, and a Republican governor. Jack Whitford, the Senate Majority Leader from Grimes, used his opening day remarks to highlight many of those conservative law changes of the past six years, including multiple rounds of tax reductions, a dramatic reduction of collective bargaining rights for public workers, changes to election laws and the judicial nominating process, restrictions on legal abortions, and the expansion of gun rights. Republicans in the Iowa Senate do not shy away from hard work or hard decisions, and Iowans have rewarded us for it. Whitfer said, With the historical success we have had, I think it's safe to say that we are ready for bigger, bolder, and better. Democratic legislators, unable to influence the lawmaking process with their votes, called on Republicans to work on bipartisan legislation that will benefit all Iowans. Zach Walls, leader of the Senate Democrats from Coralville, said lawmakers' focus this year should be on Iowa's stagnant population growth and shortage of workers. It's been called a brain drain and workforce crisis, but really this challenge is bigger than that. What we face is a people crisis, an exodus in the state of Iowa, Walls said. Whether it's growing wait lists for child care, bigger class sizes in our public schools, or the shuttering of labor and delivery units at hospitals across our state, this crisis threatens the future of Iowa and is holding us back every single day. Everything we do this session should be focused on this crisis. Well, Republicans pledged action on three main topics, property taxes, funding for K-12 private school students, and expanding transparency in K-12 public education. Republicans planned for a third consecutive year to work on legislation that would set aside state funding for private school tuition assistance. Previous attempts were supported by Governor Kim Reynolds and passed the Senate, but stalled in the House. During her successful 2022 re-election campaign, Reynolds supported challengers to incumbent Republican state lawmakers who did not support the private school tuition assistance bill. Speaking at the Republican Party of Iowa's annual legislative breakfast Monday morning, Reynolds said voters gave Iowa Republicans a mandate to continue to be bold in pursuing an agenda that puts parents and students first when it comes to their education, that fights back about the liberal woke agenda that's being shoved down our throats from Washington, D.C., and continues to keep our communities safe. She called Republicans' dominance in the 2022 state elections a red tsunami that shows Iowans like the direction Republicans are taking this state. While previous so-called school choice proposals, this is ridiculous, so-called, that's a subjective statement from this newspaper. While previous school choice proposals died in the House, Speaker Pat Grassley has been more optimistic about some of the legislation passing this year. He formed a new committee, which he will chair, uncommon for House Speaker, to address education policy, including private school tuition and K-12 transparency. He said that legislation will be Republicans' top priority. 
Grassley added that while state-funded private school scholarships are an important part of that discussion, we believe it's just part of the much broader reforms that we will see, he said. With a variety of policy ideas, some of which will look familiar, we can provide greater choice to Iowa parents and keep our public school system strong, Grassley said. We're crafting creative solutions to the issues that have plagued our state for years, like workforce shortages. We're digging deep into the issues that are oftentimes deemed too complicated to address, like property taxes. And we're acting on the concerns we hear consistently from our constituents and are pushing back against the radical social agenda being forced upon us and our children by the left. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst of Windsor Heights reiterated Democrats' position of putting people over politics, a message they unveiled during the 2022 campaign, and urged Republicans to remember the wishes of their constituents. My charge to you and to us is to use this new House of Representatives as an opportunity to set aside politics or set politics aside and do the work for the people, Confer said. We all knocked on a lot of doors last spring, last summer, last fall, and we talked to our constituents about what they wanted. Let's remember what they told us when drafting legislation. Confer said Democrats will prioritize lowering costs for Iowans, legalizing marijuana, increasing funding for public schools, and protecting abortion rights, all issues she said Iowans care about. Listening to voters is exactly what House Republicans plan, according to House Majority Leader Matt Winchill of Missouri Valley. He said that House Republicans' wins in the 2022 election show the party has a mandate to enact its agenda. Winchell, or maybe it's Winscheidel. I don't want to say the wrong thing here because it'll be too close to something else. Winscheidel said Republican legislation will be crafted with an eye toward expanding freedoms in Iowa. Referencing an amendment Iowans passed designed to enshrine gun rights in the state's constitution. We took a message out. We showed Iowans what we're capable of. We told them what we're going to do and how we're going to govern. And vote, voters said, yes, that is what we want, when Scheidel said. The first week of the legislative session is largely ceremonial. Legislative leaders gave their session opening remarks Monday. Reynolds will give her condition of the state address Tuesday evening. Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice Susan Christensen will address lawmakers Wednesday. And Iowa National Guard Adjutant General Ben Correll will address legislators Thursday. The session is scheduled to last until late April, but there is no hard deadline for it to end. Iowa's sessions often trickle into May and occasionally into June, one of Lawmakers' top priorities each year is to craft the next state budget. Iowa's state budget year begins July 1st. In our final front page story here on this reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette, Farmers Win Right to Repair. John Deere, American Farm Bureau, signed Agreements on Repairs. It's written by Gretchen Teske of the Quad City Times. A long-standing battle between farmers and John Deere is being resolved. On Sunday, the American Farm Bureau and John Deere announced a memorandum of understanding that permits farmers to choose where their equipment is repaired or to repair it themselves. Previously, only authorized leaders, dealers rather, could repair Deere equipment. Monday, Deere issued the following statement. The agreement with the American Farm Bureau formalizes the long-standing commitment Deere has to ensure our customers have the diagnostics, tools, and information they need to repair their machines. We look forward to working alongside the American Farm Bureau and our customers in the months and years ahead to ensure farmers continue to have the tools and resources they need to diagnose, maintain, and repair their equipment. According to the Memorandum of Understanding, equipment owners will now have electronic access on fair and reasonable terms to manufacturers' tools, specialty tools, software, and documentation. According to a news release from the Farm Bureau, the agreement formalizes farmers' access to diagnostic and repair codes, as well as manuals, operator, parts, service, and product guides. It also ensures farmers will be able to purchase diagnostic tools directly from John Deere and receive assistance from the manufacturer when ordering parts and products. Farm Bureau President Zippy Duval said in a statement that equipment is a major investment and farmers need the freedom to choose where equipment is repaired or to repair it themselves in order to control costs. 
The MOU commits John Deere to ensuring farmers and independent repair facilities have access to many of the tools and software needed to grow the food, fuel, and fiber America's families rely on, Duvall said. According to the Department of Justice, an MOU is a non-financial collaboration with partnering organizations that shows they have consulted and coordinated with one another with the intent to form a contract. It is not legally binding, according to Investopedia. Maybe that's like Wikipedia. Is that where we reference all of our legal questions? Uh, Moving on. Multiple class action complaints were filed against Deere, alleging the company has monopolized the repair service market with onboard computers called engine control units, of which the software and tools necessary to fix are inaccessible to farmers and non-Deere repair shops. As previously reported, right-to-repair policies would give independent dealers and Deere's competition access to parts, software, and information that would let them repair Deere equipment, according to a report by the U.S. Public Interest Research Group Education Fund in March of 2022. If all dealerships and mechanics took advantage of the policies, the number of repair options in Illinois would at least double. All right. So that uh, brings us here to more news, not on the front page because we've taken care of it all. Moving on to page A2 now. Arizona man charged with felony meth charges in Floyd County. This written by Matthew Rezab. An Arizona man allegedly caught with approximately four pounds of methamphetamine near Rudd on New Year's Eve is facing up to 30 years in prison. According to court records, 42-year-old John T. Qualls of Tucson, Arizona, was arrested by Floyd County Sheriff's deputies uh, or the department on U.S. Highway 18 around 5.49 a.m. December 31st. He has been charged with a controlled substance violation, which is a Class B felony punishable by up to 25 years in prison. Qualls also was charged with failure to affix a drug stamp, which is punishable by up to five years in jail. The affidavit states that a traffic stop of a 2014 Chevy Cruze uh, Qualls was driving near mile marker 201, was conducted because he was traveling 88 miles per hour in a 65 mile per hour zone. A, probably, a probable cause search was then conducted. Law enforcement then allegedly found two plastic bags in the vehicle weighing four pounds. Fuel tests resulted in a positive uh, ID for methamphetamine. In other news, old NASA satellite falls harmlessly from sky off Alaska. This written by Marcia Dunn of the Associated Press, Dateline, Cape Canaveral, Florida. After almost 40 years circling Earth, a retired NASA science satellite plunged harmlessly through the atmosphere off the coast of Alaska, NASA reported Monday. The Defense Department confirmed that the satellite, placed in orbit in 1984 by astronaut Sally Ride, re-entered late Sunday night over the Bering Sea, a few hundred miles from Alaska. NASA said it received no reports of injury or damage from falling debris. Late last week, NASA said it expected most of the 5,400-pound Earth radiation budget satellite to burn up in the atmosphere, but that some pieces might survive. The space agency put the odds of falling debris injuring someone in a 1 in 9,400 chance. Space Shuttle Challenger carried the satellite into orbit and the first American woman in space to set it free. The satellite measured ozone in the atmosphere and studied how Earth absorbed and radiated energy from the sun before being retired in 2005, well beyond its expected working lifetime. In other news, Biden faces Israel quandary with new Netanyahu government. Dateline, Washington. This is written by Matthew Lee of the Associated Press. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's new government is a little more than a week old, but it's already giving the Biden administration headaches. Just days into its mandate, a controversial number of Netanyahu's right-wing cabinet riled U.S. diplomats with a visit to a Jerusalem holy site that some believe may be harbinger of other contentious moves, including vast expansions of Jewish settlement construction on land claimed by the Palestinians. And Netanyahu's government adopted punitive measures against the Palestinians that run in direct opposition to several recent Biden moves to boost U.S.-Palestinian relations, including restoring assistance to the Palestinian Authority that had been cut during the Trump administration and allowing Palestinian officials to visit the United States. Uh, 
The new government is an unwelcome complication for a Biden national security team seeking to shift attention away from the Middle East and towards rivals like China and Russia. It also comes as Republicans take control of the House of Representatives and are eager to cast Biden as unfriendly to Israel ahead of the 2024 presidential election. Bracing for more turmoil, Biden is dispatching his national security advisor to Israel in mid-January in a bid to forestall potentially deepening rifts between his administration and its top Mideast partner. Moving on now, since we've taken care of all of page A2, page A3, farmers endured a rough year, but fertilizer companies cashed in. The story by the Iowa Capital Dispatch and Monica Cordero Sancho. And one editor's note, the story was originally published by Investigate Midwest. Lance Lillibridge, a farmer in East Central Iowa, knows farming's ups and downs. He has been in this business since he was knee-high to a grasshopper and is the first of a family of farmers to own his land. But he said the sharp increase in fertilizer prices this year has put him in a challenging position. It's very gut-wrenching, he said. It's very difficult to be optimistic about the future because these prices are so high. Well, this year's drastic increase in fertilizer prices has hit farmers' pockets and many have opted to buy less fertilizer and look for other alternatives to nourish the soil. However, fertilizer manufacturers have largely escaped unscathed. The high prices, which have soared past inflation, have cushioned their bottom lines from any decline in sales, according to financial reports. This year, giant fertilizer companies hauled in hundreds of millions in net earnings. The rise in profits represents massive percentage increases since last year. One major producer's earnings jumped more than 1,000% in the first nine months of 2022 than in the same period last year. Lillibridge's 2,500-acre farm in Benton in Benton County mostly grows corn, a crop that requires a lot of fertilizer compared to soybeans or wheat. Although corn has sold at high prices over the last two years and grain is expected to remain high, Lillibridge said it's very frustrating as a farmer right now. Farmers could be paying hundreds of thousands more for fertilizer, he said. It's difficult to be able to pencil this out, he said. Of planning the year ahead right now, I can't even get a price on fertilizer for spring. So how do I make any decisions? Well, fertilizer, which makes soil more productive, can be the difference between a, bad, a good and bad harvest in many cases. Because of that, modern American row crops have become dependent on fertilizer after generations of farming have degraded the topsoil. Runoff from fertilizer can also have disastrous downstream effects. It exacerbates the dead zone, an area where fish can no longer live in the Gulf of Mexico, and it poisons drinking water. Midwestern farmers spent nearly four out of every $10 of the cost of growing corn on fertilizer in 2021. According to the most recent data of the USDA's Commodity Costs and Return, for soybeans, fertilizers account for less than two out of ten dollars uh, of operating costs. The increase in fertilizer prices has probably been the number one issue for farmers," said Nichols Paulson, or Nicholas Paulson, a professor in agriculture economics at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Paulson said fertilizer use is significant for soybeans, but corn is more dependent on fertilizers, especially nitrogen fertilizer, one of the main types of fertilizer, along with phosphate and potassium. Fertilizer prices have risen for the past two years, but reached record highs last spring. Multiple factors have driven the increase. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, both countries are major producers, the subsequent economic sanctions and disruptions to Black Sea trade routes have further increased trade costs and uncertainty for Russian and Belarusian exports. Prices for fertilizer have fallen since spring but remain high. While not as high as in the spring, fertilizer costs are significantly higher than a year ago and remain higher than 2019. This increase is considerably higher than for other prices across the economy. From the third quarter of 2019 to the same period this year, the average price of two of the most widely used types of fertilizer, diammonium phosphate, DAP, and potash, doubled in cost, according to an analysis of DTN slash the Progressive Farmer Fertilizer Price data by Investigate Midwest. In contrast, overall inflation in that period was 20%, 
but the most significant price increase over that same time period has been for anhydrous ammonia, an effective and widely used nitrogen fertilizer. The price of anhydrous ammonia fertilizer increased by 152%. That is not normal, said Lillibridge, who also is a member of the board of directors for the Iowa Corn Growers Association. In years past, we've had a pretty good idea what we could buy fertilizer for in the fall and what we could buy it for in the spring, Lillibridge said. He said that's a burden for farmers because they have had to triple their fertilizer budget. If they had planned to invest $400,000, that means they now have to spend $1.2 million, he explained. I hear more of my farmer friends say, I don't even know why I do this anymore, Lillibridge says. Well, frustrations with concentrated market. Multiple factors influence the price of fertilizers. The price of natural gas, which is used in nitrogen-based fertilizer production, affects the cost, as do farmers' returns. When farmers make more money, fertilizer companies change more, agricultural economist Carl Zuloff said. Higher grain prices, from corn to wheat to sunflower oil, have boosted farmers' profits to nearly $161 billion this year, up 14% from the previous year, according to U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates. We as farmers feel very offended that just because corn prices went up, the fertilizer prices went up, said Dennis Friest, Iowa Corn Growers Association president. Attributing price increases to a concentrated fertilizer market made up of a few giant players. They have total control over whatever price they charge. Well, two companies supply most of North America's potash fertilizers, while four supply 75% of U.S. nitrogen fertilizers, according to a March 2022 U.S. Department of Agriculture report. The report even warned of concentration. These companies' possession of scarce resources, often in other countries, and control over critical production, transportation, and distribution channels raises heightened risks related to concentration and completion, it read. Well, Nutrien, a Canadian company formed through the January 2018 merger between Potash Corp and Agrium and Mosaic, based in Florida, dominate the potassium fertilizer market. Meanwhile, the major players operating in the nitrogen fertilizer market included CF Industries, an Illinois-based company, Nutrien, Mosaic, and the Norwegian chemical company Yara. Wes Schumeyer, a former state senator in Missouri and a corn farmer who said the high prices made him find a biological alternative to fertilizer from a company named Pivot Bio, said he thinks the Biden administration should investigate the concentrated market. We have to enforce the antitrust rules, he said. We're seeing this administration become more aggressive on many antitrust laws. Well, year of cash flow for manufacturers. Although the rise in fertilizer prices has hurt farmers, it has led fertilizer manufacturers to record triple-digit profit increases for most of this year, according to reports that Mosaic and CF Industries filed with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the Canadian company Nutrien publishes on its website. For example, Mosaic's net earnings totaled $842 million in the first nine months of 2022, representing an increase in profits over... 200, or 217% over the same amount of time last year. A company's net earnings indicate how much money it made in a given period after factoring in expenses like operating costs. Mosaic did not return requests for comment. CF Industries and Nutrien also saw windfalls. CF Industries reported more than $2.49 billion over the first nine months of 2022, a 1,075% bump compared to the same amount of time last year. When asked about its earnings, a CF Industries spokesperson pointed to a post on its website. The post said prices for nitrogen fertilizer, the company's focus, are determined by high natural gas prices. European natural gas prices have hit record highs in early March 2022 due to the uncertainty created by the invasion of Ukraine and by Russia, uh, which is a major supplier of natural gas to Europe. The post reads in part, this affects prices worldwide. Nutrien also pointed to a post on its website explaining key drivers of fertilizer costs, including natural gas prices. 
The company's president and CEO, Ken Seitz, touted his company's high earnings in a press release. Nutrien has delivered record earnings in 2022 due to the strength of agriculture fundamentals, higher fertilizer prices, and excellent retail performance. In their reports, the companies mentioned that high fertilizer prices have caused farmers to buy less fertilizer. However, this drop in sales does not affect their earnings growth. They make excuses for price gouging. That said, Joe Maxwell, president of Farm Action and a farm a former, rather, Democratic lieutenant governor of Missouri. They have blamed high natural gas prices. They blamed hurricanes in Louisiana and Florida, and they blame COVID. The truth is that they're exhibiting monopolistic practices within the marketplace. This story is a product of the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk, an editorially independent reporting network based at the University of Missouri School of Journalism in partnership with the Report for America and the Society of Environmental Journalists, funded by the Walton Family Foundation. Investigate Midwest is an independent, nonprofit newsroom. Its mission is to serve the public interest by exposing dangerous and costly practices of influential agricultural corporations and institutions through in-depth and data-driven investigative journalism. You can visit online at www.investigatemidwest.org. That story from the Iowa Capital Dispatch, airing here in the Mason City Globe Gazette. Moving on now to our halfway point, because we are definitely way past it. You are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. All of our programs are intended for the use of our audience. We appreciate your listenership. If you have any questions or concerns or comments, 515 515- 243-6833 or 1-877-404-4747. Now taking a look at the obituaries for this Tuesday edition. The first for Teresa A. Gifford, age 87. Uh, she passed away on January 2nd. In lieu of flowers, please donate to Hospice of North Iowa or a charity of your choice. Teresa Ann, her maiden name was Dash, D-A-S-C-H, Gifford, was born to John and Mabel Blonigan Dash on November 11, 1935, in a small farmhouse in New Haven. There she learned to work hard and the importance of family. She was graduated from the Rudd, Iowa school system in 1953. After graduating, Teresa worked for Hedrick Brothers, a small office supply store in Mason City, and would later work at Northwestern Bell in the front office in Mason City. On June 18, 1955, Teresa married James Gifford at Holy Family Church in Mason City. One daughter, Melody, and two sons, Michael and Jamie, were born. In 1968, the family moved to Charles City, where Jim continued to work for the Northwestern Bell, and Terry worked at Oliver White Farm Tractor in a secretarial role. Later in life, Terry and Jim would move back to Mason City and eventually retire. Teresa was a woman of faith and family. She liked to attend church and volunteer back in the day. She dearly loved her family and was a constant force to support them. She especially enjoyed the Mason City Band Festival, both as a student and participant with her Rudd classmates and attending it with her children and grandchildren. Teresa liked to sew, knit, and crochet. She enjoyed playing cards and excelled at playing bridge. She also enjoyed playing golf with her husband, Jim, and her many friends. They enjoyed the challenge of the game and became somewhat proficient, winning a couple local tournaments. In her retired years, she enjoyed playing the odds and taking short junkets with her friends at, to the local casino. Teresa was preceded in death by her parents, her husband Jim, son Jamie, grandson Nathan Sills, brother Philip Dash, and Sonny Dash, but both brothers. Uh, there, uh, Philip Dash and Sonny Dash. Uh, Teresa is survived by her daughter, Melody Gifford, uh, married to Tony of Austin, Texas. Son, Michael Gifford, married to Lauren Lind of Centerpoint, Iowa. Daughter-in-law, Terry, married to Noah Gifford of Indianola, Iowa. A brother, Gary, married to Jan Dash of Mason City, Iowa. Sister, Camila Ent of Grinnell, Iowa. Sister, Nancy Washeshek of Mason City, Iowa, and sister-in-law Dolores Haynes of Cedar Bluffs, Nebraska. She all, also surviving our eight grandchildren, Alexis Sills of Austin, Texas, Danielle or Daniel Gifford, 
married to Sam of Indianola, Iowa, Stephen Gifford of Littleton, Colorado, Connor Gifford of Des Moines, Iowa, Gus Gifford of Austin, Texas, Grayson Gifford of Chicago, Illinois, Elliot Lawrence of West Des Moines, and Abby Lind, married to Ezra Torres of Draper, Utah. Also surviving are two great-grandchildren, Tristan and Paisley Gifford, uh, with uh, Dan and Sam, as uh, who they're with. Uh, their parents, apparently, the way this reads, I think. A celebration of life is being planned for the spring of 2023. Next up, Spencer James Boyd, age 30, passed away unexpectedly January 5th, 2023, in Mason City, Iowa. A celebration of life will be held at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, January 12th, 2023, at the Hogan Brevermore Colonial Chapel, located at 126 3rd Street Northeast in Mason City, with Pastor Katie Chulino officiating. Anurement will be held in the Clear Lake Cemetery at a later date. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, January 11th at the Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel located at 126 3rd Street Northeast in Mason City. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the family. Spencer was born on April 12, 1992 in Mason City, the son of Jasper and Shelley Web Webner Boyd. He attended Norris Springs High School and graduated from Central Springs High School's class of 2010. Spencer attended training school at NASCAR Tech in Mooresville, North Carolina. He worked many construction jobs, and most recently he worked at Dean Snyder Construction as a foreman. In his spare time, Spencer enjoyed racing go-karts and worked on a pit crew on the Budweiser circuit one summer. In his younger years, he was active in wrestling and cross-country. He liked fishing, listening to music, and going to raves. Animals had a soft place in his heart, always taking in the strays. Spencer's favorite thing to do was riding motorcycles and four-wheelers with his son, Caston. He always said that Caston was his greatest accomplishment. Spencer loved big, and his love will be greatly missed. Those left to cherish memories of Spencer are his son, Caston James Boyd, parents, Shelley Boyd, uh, who's with Weston Fink, Jasper, married to Kimberly Boyd, siblings, Parker, married to Megan Boyd, Stephanie, married to Sam Peterson, uh, Ma, her last name is Moss, and Kenzie, married to Jeffrey Hanna, niece and nephews, Asher, Anna, Silas, and Elijah, uh, the mother of Caston, Alyssa Callow, canine friends, Molly and Jewel, as well as many aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends. Spencer is preceded in death by his grandparents, Herbert and Amy Webner, Jasper Sr., and Marie Boyd, Uncle Mike Boyd, and many pets that went before him. The Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, located at 126 3rd Street Northeast in Mason City, is in charge of arrangements. They can be reached at 641-423-2372. And finally, our last full obituary is for Monica M. Paca. That last name is spelled P-A-C-A of Garner. Monica M. Paca, age 94 of Garner, died Saturday, January 7th, 2023 at Concord Care Center. A funeral mass will be held at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, January 12th, 2023 at the St. Wenceslas Catholic Church in Duncan. A private family burial will be held Friday at St. John's Catholic Cemetery. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, January the 11th, 2023 at the St. Wenceslas Catholic Church in Duncan with the Rosary Society Rosary at 3.30 p.m. followed by a scriptural wake service. Visitation will continue one hour prior to services at the church. The Cataldo Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements, www.cataldofuneralhome.com. Two death note notices to also bring you here. The first for Fannie Mae Rover, age 93, of Hampton, died Thursday, January 5, 2023, at the Rehabilitation Center of Hampton. Arrangements are with the Council Woodley Funeral Home. And secondly, David A. Stuckey, age 75, of Mason City, died Sunday, January 8, 2023, at home. Arrangements are with the Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel. One short article to bring you before we move into sports. This written by Tom Krishner of the Associated Press. U.S. traffic deaths slipped in first nine months of 2022. Dateline Detroit. The number of traffic deaths on U.S. roadways fell slightly during the first nine months of last year, 2022. But pedestrian and cyclist deaths continued to rise. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration estimates that 31,000 
785 people were killed in crashes from January through September last year, down 0.2% from the same period of 2021. The agency also estimates that fatalities dropped slightly in the third quarter of the year, the second straight quarterly decline after seven quarters of year-over-year -year increases. Agency Acting Administrator Ann Carlson says in a prepared statement Monday that there's still more, more work to do to address a crisis on the nation's roads. She's urging people to drive safely and watch out for vulnerable road users such as pedestrians, cyclists, and motorcyclists. The Governor's Highway Safety Association, a group of state traffic safety officials, said the reduction in deaths is welcome, but it follows an unprecedented two-year surge in roadway deaths and dangerous driving. The number of deaths is down by only 65 from January through September. Today's news is a small step forward for safer roads, the group said, blaming the spike in 2020 and 2021 on unsafe driver behavior, including speeding, impaired and distracted driving, and lack of seatbelt use. Fatalities began to rise two years ago when roads were largely empty due to stay-at-home orders in many states. With less traffic, speeds increased as did reckless and impaired driving, leading to a record spike in deaths last year, authorities have said. Many people weren't wearing seatbelts, the government said. The NHTSA says it estimates its estimates are typically are close to actual numbers. Final figures for 2022 won't be released until later. The NHTSA said the, um, that the Americans continue to drive more than during the height of the pandemic, with preliminary Federal Highway Administration data showing a 1.6% increase in vehicle miles traveled in the, last, in, the, rather, in the first nine months of the last year. As a result, the estimated fatality rate for the period fell to 1.3 deaths per 100 million miles traveled, compared with 1.32 a year earlier. The number of cyclists killed rose 8% through September of last year, the agency estimated, while motorcyclist deaths rose 5% and pedestrian deaths were up 2%. Fatalities on rural interstates rose 12% during the first nine months of 2022, and crashes involving at least one large truck were up 10%, according to NHTSA estimates. But deaths fell 10% on urban collector and local roads and dropped 10% among children younger than 16. Speeding-related crashes fell 2% during the period and decreased 7% among people who weren't wearing seatbelts. Nearly 43,000 people were killed on U.S. roads in 2021, the highest number in 16 years as Americans returned to the roads. The 10.5% jump over 2020 numbers was the largest percentage increase since NHTSA began its fatality data collection system in 1975. In an effort to reduce the deaths, the federal government is spending $5 billion in aid to cities and localities to slow vehicles, carve out bike paths, and nudge commuters to public transit. All right, that being read and said, we move on now to the world of sports here in the Mason City Globe Gazette, Tuesday, January 10th edition. Ready to serve the fans of North Iowa, column by Austin Hansen. Meet Austin, actually no, it's about Austin Hansen. Uh, meet Austin Hansen, the Globe Gazette's new sports reporter. Well, is it by Austin I think that is written by him. Okay. North Iowa is at home to me. I'm a Quad City kid turned University of Iowa alum. But that doesn't mean I'm not passionate about communities and sports I'll be covering in Mason City, Clear Lake, and the surrounding area. I'm still unfamiliar with the high schools, coaches, and student-athletes I'll be working with. I recognize there will be growing pains early on as I learn more about the North Iowa sports scene. But rest assured, I'm dedicated to sharing local sports stories to the best of my ability. For the last three and a half years, I've been covering the Iowa Hawkeyes for the Daily Iowan, the University of Iowa's student newspaper. I've written about the 2021 Iowa men's wrestling team's national and Big Ten championship runs. Luca Garza's National Men's Basketball Player of the Year campaign, and Hawkeye football's appearance in the 2021 Big Ten Championship game. I've also provided freelance coverage of USA Wrestling's senior national team trials for the Cedar Rapids Gazette and talked to some of the world's best wrestlers like 149-pounder Yanni Diakomahalis, I'm hoping to say that right, 165-pounder Vincent Vincenzo Joseph, and 197-pound Olympic gold medalist Kyle Snyder. 
I'm thankful for the opportunities I've had to cover those athletes, teams, and events, but I'm, all, I'm ready to tackle the new challenges I will face as the Mason City Globe Gazette's sports reporter. Things won't always be perfect. I understand that. Jim Nelson, our regional sports editor, and I would love to be at every dual meet and game within our 16-school coverage zone, but we can only one, work one or two events at a time. My promise is to cover every team fairly and accurately, even if I can't get out to all the games. The experience and knowledge I acc uh, accrued at the Daily Iowan and the University of Iowa have positioned me to quickly adapt to a new market and provide timely coverage of its sports. As I start to make my way from school to school in the coming weeks, I'm sure I'll start to meet many of our readers, and I welcome any conversation you want to have with me, whether it be about local sports or the Minnesota Vikings Super Bowl hopes. So if you see me out and about, don't be afraid to come introduce yourself and chat with me. There is still a lot I have to learn about covering high school sports in North Iowa, too, and I'd appreciate any tips or feedback our readers can give me. If you have story ideas or want to point any events out that I should cover, email me at austin.hanson, H-A-N-S-O-N, at globegazette.com. I can also be found on Twitter at ahanson underscore 41. My DMs are open, and I encourage everyone to message me with questions. My goal is to be transparent, and I hope this column makes that clear. You might not always be a fan of my work, but I do want to earn your respect. I'm excited to get to see all of you in the field, and I thank you in advance for joining me on this ride we're about to go on together. For those that followed me here from the Daily Iowan, I appreciate your sticking with me. I will continue to provide content that is both interesting and informative. Fasten your seatbelts. With college and part-time jobs out of the way, I'm going to put together some incredible stories as a full-time sports reporter. All right, in high school roundup, Mohawks crush Saints. Dispenses, Canteris score full goals each in victory. This is a staff report out of Dubuque. One day after losing to the Dubuque Fighting Saints, the Mason City Mohawks hockey team took out their frustrations on the Saints in a 9-2 Midwest High School Hockey League win at the Mystique, Mystique Ice Arena. Dominic Despenes and Kellen Canteris. Each scored full go four goals as the Mohawks improved to a 10-7-0-1 on the season. Canteris added three assists for a seven-point game, while Dylan Bieber assisted on five goals. Max Lang also scored for Mason City. Mason City scored four times in the first period as Canteris scored just 47 seconds into the contest. Despinas made it 2-0 with 11 minutes and 42 seconds left before Dubuque scored to make it 2-1. But Despinas and Canteris each scored again before the end to make it 4-1 uh, after 17 minutes of play. The Mohawks trailed three empty net goals in the second, two by Canteris as Mason City led 7-2 after two periods. Despinas and Lang each scored in the third to close out the win. Chandler Radcliffe stopped 22 shots to earn the win in net. Despinas now has 21 goals and 32 points on the season. Bieber leads the squad with 32 points, including 19 assists, while Canteris now has 7 goals and 17 assists. The Mohawks are next in action Saturday at Quad City at the River's Edge Ice Arena. And boys swimming, River Hawks take 8th. Racing in the competitive Austin Packer Invitational Saturday in Austin, Minnesota, Mason City got strong performances from Daniel Schwartz, and Anders Bookmeyer. Schwartz took 9th in the 100 breaststroke and 12th in the 200 individual medley. Bookmeyer was 11th in the 500 freestyle and 14th in the 200 freestyle. The Riverhawks senior night is tonight at home versus the Marshalltown Bobcats at 5.30 p.m. All right, that takes care of all the local sports for this edition. From the digest section, We'll bring it to you briefly here before we uh, wrap it up for this episode. Georgia's special grand jury ends its probe, Dateline Atlanta. A special grand jury in Atlanta that investigated whether President Donald Trump and his allies committed crimes while trying to overturn his 2022 election loss in Georgia has finished his work, bringing the cl case closer to possible criminal charges against Trump and others. Fulton County Su Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney, who oversaw the panel, 
issued a two-page order Monday dissolving the special grand jury, saying it completed its work and submitted a final report. The decision whether to seek an indictment from a regular grand jury will be up to Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. Willis spokesperson Jeff DeSantis said the office had no comment on the completion of the panel's work. McBurney scheduled a hearing for January 24th to determine whether all or part of the report should be released. Ukrainians reject Russian claim. This from Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Officials at a vocational school in an eastern Ukrainian city dismissed Russian claims that hundreds of Ukrainian troops were killed in a missile strike there, saying Monday that a rocket merely blew out windows and damaged classrooms. Russia specifically named the vocational school in Kramatorsk as the target of an attack in the almost 11-month war. The Russian Defense Ministry said its missiles hit two temporary bases housing 1,300 Ukrainian troops in the city, killing 600 of them late Saturday. Associated Press reporters visiting the scene Monday saw a four-story concrete building with most of its windows blown out. There were neither signs of a Ukrainian military presence nor any casualties. In the brief sections, strike. Thousands of nurses went on strike Monday at two of... New York City's major hospitals after contract negotiations stalled over staffing and salaries nearly three years into the coronavirus pandemic. As many as 3,500 nurses at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx and about 3,600 at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan were off the job. From California, rain-weary Californians grappled with flooding and mudslides Monday as the latest in a series of powerful storms walloped the state, toppling trees and frustrating motorists who hit roadblocks caused by fallen debris. Joe Biden issued an emergency declaration Monday. In Iran, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Monday that Iran's sale of lethal drones to Russia for use in its Ongoing investigation of Ukraine means the country may be contributing to widespread war crimes. Election 2022, the U.S. Postal Service delivered more than 54 million ballots for the midterm election, with almost 99 percent of ballots delivered to election officials within three days, officials said Monday. The Postal Service's post-election analysis showed that on average it it took under two days to deliver completed ballots. Remains identified. Human remains found in 1997 along Lake Michigan shoreline in western Michigan were identified as those as of Dorothy Lynn Thing Ricker, a Chicago woman last seen weeks earlier at a Wisconsin beachfront park, Michigan State Police said Monday. And finally, in COVID-19, Chinese health care authorities declined to include Pfizer's COVID-19 treatment drug in a reimbursement list that would have allowed patients to get it at a cheaper price. The National Healthcare Security Administration said Sunday, saying it was too expensive. And with that being read and said, that is all the time we have for this reading of the Mesa City Globe Gazette. This is the January 10th edition, Tuesday, January 10th. It's brought to you here in the morning of Wednesday, January 11th. We're having a great start to your day, everyone. Our live register reading is next. The reading of the Des Moines Register here on IRC Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the blind and disabled. That is, if you're listening to us on the air, Have a nice day, everyone. Thanks for listening and straight ahead.